Just stand and pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in Amos chapter number two. And of course, last week we started a brand new study in the book of Amos. We're doing a chapter by chapter study. And uh, we are in our second week here in chapter number two. And just by way of introduction, as we get started, I want you to notice in both chapters one and chapter number two, there is a repetitiveness um, that God uses, that the prophet Amos uses. And we talked about it a little bit last week, and I pointed out that every time that a nation is mentioned, and if you remember, chapters one and chapters two is a series of sermons and messages that Amos is preaching against eight different nations. And every time he brings up a different nation, he made uh, this point, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And we used that and went through it and looked at it to make the point last week that God punishes nations. And we kind of focused on that. But there's other things that are repetitive that I want you to notice as well. If you look at Amos chapter 2 and verse 1, you'll see that the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four. And that phrase is a phrase that as you read these two chapters, you'll notice it comes up over and over. Every time that a new nation is mentioned, you'll see for three transgressions and for four. If you skip down to verse number four of Amos chapter two, you'll notice that it says, For thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. If you skip down to verse number six of the same chapter, it says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. If you flip back to chapter one, you'll notice that this is repetitiveness is done as well. And whenever God is repeating something over and over, he does that for a reason. In the Bible, when you see things repeated, they are repeated for emphasis. God is trying to make a point, and he wants us to see something. Notice there in Amos chapter one and verse three, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishments thereof. Verse 6, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away the punishments thereof. Verse 9, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishments thereof. Verse 11, for thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not turn away the punishments thereof. Verse 13, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. So I just want you to notice that that is used as kind of an introduction to each one of these nations that is being judged by God for three transgressions and for four. And again, it's done, it's repeated for emphasis. God wants us to learn something from it and understand. And just a couple of thoughts, and like I said, this is just by way of introduction, but a couple of things that you could take away from those statements for three transgressions and for four. One thing is that it highlights the fact that God is a long-suffering God that God is not on a hair trigger. Because notice it says, for three transgressions and for four. So you notice that God is not on this, the, the prophet Amos is emphasizing the fact that God is not on this hair trigger where they like, they did one thing and he's just coming down on them. God says, look, I've been waiting. I've been patient. Three transgressions and for four. He said, you got to the place where I will not turn away the punishment thereof. But the fact that God waited for three transgressions and for four shows us the long-suffering of God, that God is not on this hair trigger to uh, punish us and to come down hard on us. But it also shows us this, 
that though God is long-suffering, there is an extent to the patience of God. And God is not going to just allow nations to just continue to sin against him and to rebel against him. And he's not going to allow people to do it either. Let me just read a verse for you. You don't have to turn here. I'll just read this for you. In Genesis 6-3, the Bible says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. The Bible says in Genesis 6-3, God said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. And the word strive means to work with or to work alongside. And God says, I'm not always going to be working with you and working on you. And in Genesis chapter 6, the context, if you remember, is right before God flooded the entire earth. And with that phrase, my spirit shall not always strive with man, what this tells us is that there comes a point with human beings that God gives up, that God says, I'm done trying to help you for three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And of course, in Genesis 6, 3, when God said, my spirit shall not always strive with man, that was probably one of the most dramatic and epic uh, times that God gave up on, on mankind when he said, I'm just done with this, I'm just going to kill them all, Right. And he flooded the entire world, of course, except for Noah and those that were in the ark with him. So we learn from the repetition here for three transgressions and for four that God is a long-suffering God. He's not on a hair trigger to just come down hard on you, but he's also not so long-suffering that he's just going to allow you to get away with anything and, and just get away with as much sin as you want. You know, God may not be the God, God may be the God of the second chance, and he oftentimes is the God of the second chance, but he's not necessarily the God of the fifth and the sixth chance, is the point that is being made here by Amos. He's saying, look, you've had your chance, you've had your opportunity for three transgressions, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. The other thing that I want to just highlight for you, and we're about to go into the passage and and go through it verse by verse, but is that the repetition of these eight different nations shows us, and I made this point last week, but I want to just make sure you understand it, that God is not a respecter of persons, and he is not a respecter of nations. If you remember, God is using Amos to deliver eight different sermons to eight different nations. We saw in chapter 1 that he preached against Damascus. He preached against the Philistines and Gaza. He preached against Tyrus and Edom and Ammon. Here in this chapter, we're going to see him preach against Moab, and then he's going to preach against Judah, and he's going to preach against uh, the nation of Israel or the northern kingdom of Israel. And I just want you to notice that there is uh, a logic being used here by God, and the idea is that God is not a respecter of persons where he's not just coming down hard on these heathen nations while allowing his people, the children of Israel, to do whatever they want. In fact, What God is actually doing is he's zeroing in on the nation of Israel uh, and specifically the northern kingdom of Israel, but both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And I want to just kind of explain this to you. I actually have a map here that I uh, found and I I added some notes to the map uh, just for my own personal study, but I'm not able to just show this to you. But I I, I want you to just kind of understand this. If If you were looking at a map of the Middle East and specifically the nation of Israel, what you would find is you have the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Israel. Obviously, they're northern and southern. They're right above each other. 
the southern kingdom of Israel, you have Jerusalem, you have Judah, and then the northern kingdom of Israel is what we refer to in the New Testament as Galilee, is the the northern part. When you have the nation of Israel, on one side of it, you of course have the Mediterranean Sea, and on the other side of it, you have the Jordan River, you've got the Sea of Galilee up top, and and, and you kind of have that natural border. Obviously, there were some parts of the tribes that were on the other side of the Jordan River. Here's what I want you to understand. If you, if you can kind of just put your mind uh, and, and think of a map or just look at your maps in, in your Bible if you want, if you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel, when you look at the nations surrounding the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, what you have is these eight nations that are being uh, preached by, preached against by the prophet Amos. If you have, if you can see in a map the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel, you'll find that the nation of, of Syria or Damascus is to the north of it. Then you have Ammon, which is pretty much next to it. Then you have Moab coming down. Then you have Edom. Then you have the Philistines area. And then you have up what would have been uh, the, the Phoenician nations or Tyre, those, those types of coastal nations. And if you look at a map, what you actually find is that when Amos began to preach against Damascus, Gaza, Tyrus, Edom, and Ammon, if you put a circle around the nation of Israel, you'll notice that that outer circle covers the first five nations that he preached against. It covers Damascus. It covers Uh, the Philistines area, Gaza. It covers Tyre. It covers Edom. And then if you were to put a smaller circle into inside of that bigger circle, you'll notice that it covers the nations that he preached about in the second chapter and at the end of the first chapter. You have Ammon, you have Moab, you have Judah, you have Israel. And I explain all that to say this. God is literally zeroing in on his people. He is starting with these outer heathen nations, but he's coming in closer to preach against them. Obviously, at the end of chapter 2, he's going to be preaching against Judah and specifically against Israel. And then for the rest of the book, his focus is going to be on the northern kingdom of Israel and preaching against the sins of Israel. So this book shows us that God is not a respecter of persons. He's not making... Uh, an excuse for his people. In fact, he's zeroing in on his people and he's focusing in on his people. So I hope that makes sense. And I hope you can kind of maybe see that in your mind's eye. But let's look at these uh, sermons preached by uh, Amos here regarding these uh, different nations. And of course, the first one we find is Moab. And he preaches against them in verses 1, 2, and 3. Notice there in Amos chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And here's the reason. Here's their big transgression. Because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. Because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. And of course, we don't have a lot of information about exactly what it is that Amos is talking about here. Even historically, there's not a lot of information. But the idea is this, that the Moabites have desecrated the grave of the king of Edom. 
And obviously, these nations in the ancient world would go to war with each other. The Bible even has uh, sections in it where the Moabites and the Edomites are fighting against each other. And what the Bible seems to indicate here is the problem was not that they went to war. That happens from time to time. Nations go to war. But when the Moabites had a victory against the Edomites, because if you remember, we talked about this last week, the theme of the book of Amos, more than probably any other Old Testament book, is that God cares about how we treat each other. God cares about how we treat other people. That's going to be emphasized in the chapters to come. And in chapters 1 and 2, the emphasis is that God cares how nations treat each other. And what God seems to be upset about is the fact that the Moabites desecrated the grave of the king of Edom. The actions of the Moabites show that they had no respect for human dignity and for the dignity of the Edomites. They humiliated Edom by disrespecting their dead and by disrespecting the grave of the Edomites. And God takes offense to this. Notice there in verse 2, What God says, he says, but I will send a fire upon Moab. And we have seen that that has been the punishment that God is giving throughout both chapter 1 and chapter 2. The fact that he's sending a fire and it shall devour the palaces of Kiriath and Moab shall die. Notice the emphasis. Notice how the Bible tells us Moab is going to die. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting, and with the sound of a trumpet. You say, what is that describing? That's describing a battle. God is saying, I'm going to send a nation to destroy you. And when you die, you're going to die with tumult. You're going to die with shouting, chaos, as was being described here, and with the sound of a trumpet. And of course, a sound of a trumpet in the ancient world and even in the modern world uh, tells you that battle is happening, that war is happening. Now, here's why I think that the, the, the emphasis here and what God is upset about is the fact that they burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. Obviously, the king of Edom would have been the leader of the Edomites, and they disrespected or desecrated the grave of the king of Edom. And here's why I think that's probably the proper interpretation of this passage, because God says that he's going to destroy them in verse 2 with tumult, with shouting, and with the sound of a trumpet. And then in verse 3, I want you to notice, he says, And I will cut off the judge. And I will cut off the judge. Now, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through a series called Judgment. And hopefully what you've been learning is that the judge is the leader. The ruler or the leader is the one who is supposed to be making judgment calls. So when you're a judge, according to the Bible, it means that you have the authority to decide what we're going to do, what we're not going to do, who's right, who's wrong, what's right, what's wrong. So in a church, the pastor, who's supposed to be the ruler, is supposed to be the judge, the one that makes the rules and decides what we're going to do, obviously submitting himself to the authority of the Word of God. In the home, it would be the husband or uh, the father, or with the children, it would be the mother. In a work environment, it would be the boss. So the judge is the boss. And it's interesting that in Amos 2 and verse 3, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send, verse 2, an army to destroy you. You're going to die in a battle with tumult, with shouting, with the sound of a trumpet. And here's what's going to happen, verse 3. I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and I will slay all the princes thereof with him, saith the Lord. So what, what is a prince? A prince is a political leader. It is um, someone in the New Testament, the word is used principality. 
and it is someone who has some sort of uh, political authority, a position of authority. And here the Bible says, God says, I'm going to destroy the judge and slay all the princes thereof. So why does God specifically say that when I bring judgment on Moab, I'm going to specifically judge and bring judgment upon the leaders, the judge and the princes? Why does he say that? I believe he says that because of how those judges and those princes acted towards the leaders of the Edomites. Because what did they do when they took over Edom? They didn't just win in battle. They didn't just uh, win the war. They took it a step further, and they desecrated the bones of the leaders of Edom. I hope you understand what I'm saying. They fought, they disrespected, they went out of their way to fight against and to disrespect and to desecrate the leadership in Edom. So then God says, I'm going to make sure that your leadership gets destroyed. I will cut off the judge and slay all the princes thereof. So what can we learn from this? Here's the point that, that I think Amos is making. The point that I want to make is that how leaders treat each other matters. Remember, the theme is that God cares how we treat each other. We've been looking at how nations should treat each other, but here with Moab, God is describing that God cares how leaders treat each other. He cares about how leadership has respect for other leaders, and the idea is this, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And the idea is this, that if you're going into battle, and you're the leader of the nation of Moab, and you win in battle against the Edomites, don't go out of your way to disrespect and desecrate and humiliate the leadership of that nation because God may turn that around and make sure that he cuts off the judge and slays the princes of your nation. The idea is this, that we need to be careful. And again, I told you this last week, the principles we're going to see in the book of Amos, they, they go perfectly with the idea of judgment that we're learning on Sunday mornings because here's what God is saying. God is saying it matters how you treat each other. It matters how people treat people. It matters how nations treat nations. And it matters how leaders treat leaders. You say, well, what's the application? What can we learn from that? Here's what we can learn. If you're a pastor, be careful about criticizing other pastors. I'm not talking about preaching against false prophets. I'm talking about there's another guy somewhere in another city. He loves God and he's doing the best that he can. And you don't agree with X, Y, and Z. Hey, be careful about just preaching against him, disrespecting him, going against him. Why? Because God, you might find that God cuts off you as the leader. He cuts off the judge and the prince. You know, within a church family, we should be careful about not disrespecting and desecrating other leaders. If you're the husband of a, of a family, you're the father of a home, praise the Lord. Rule your family well. Serve them and love them. But don't sit there and criticize the husband of another family and the father of another family. You say, why? Because that kind of stuff upsets God, and God might decide to just turn that around on you and put his wrath upon you because you chose to fight against a leader in another place of authority. You know, if you've been given a position of leadership at work, maybe they made you the, the, the manager of some section, or they made you the lead of some team, great, be the best leader you can. But don't sit there and criticize the other leader of the other team, 
or the other manager of the other section, don't feel the need to fight against them because God might turn that around on you. Because it matters how leaders treat each other. I just think it's interesting that out of all of these nations that are being preached about, Moab is the one that we're specifically told that God says, I'm going to bring a nation against you. You're going to die in tumult and in shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And I'm going to specifically cut off the judge and I'm going to slay all the princes. I'm going to kill the leadership. I'm going to make sure the leaders all die. God says that to Moab, who also happens to have burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. They desecrated and disrespected the authority somewhere else. So God says, I'm going to bring that back on you. So we see that it matters how leaders treat each other. And you need to be careful. If you find yourself in a position of leadership, you need to be careful about criticizing other leaders, criticizing other people. Oftentimes people ask me, what do you think about Pastor So-and-so doing X, Y, and Z? And oftentimes my response is, I don't have an opinion about that. I don't I don't care. You know, if you're asking me if I would do that, you know, well, look at what I'm doing, and that should answer to you what I would and wouldn't do. But I don't, I don't feel like it's my job to be the police of every other pastor and tell you what I think every other pastor is doing wrong. Now, if they're a false prophet, and if they're uh, spreading heresy, and if, you know, obviously that's the Lord's battles. But when it comes to just some other guy somewhere else, you know what? That's the pastor of that church. And, and if I went to that church, I would just, yes, sir. Whatever, when, I'm, when I go to other churches as a guest preacher, whatever the pastor says, yes, sir. So what if you don't like it? Then I leave. <laughs> but you know what? They're the boss. And when they come here and it's Red Hot Preaching Conference and they're here, then I make the rules, right? Because that's how it works. That's how mature Christians are able to function together, work together. You know, at my house, I make the rules. I decide what we do. I decide what we don't do. I make. All, but when I go to your house, I don't have an opinion about what you do. I may or may not do what you do. But honestly, I don't care. That's between you and God. But what I'm not going to do is sit there and criticize the leader of another organization or the leader of another home or the leader of another family or the leader of another church or the leader of another team because I'd be afraid that God would turn that back around on me. And if you desecrate the bones of another king, God might just come back and make sure that you get desecrated and you get destroyed. So that's the lesson we see there from Moab. Then in verses 4 and 5, we see the lesson from Judah. Notice there in verse 4, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions. So, and by the way, here's the one that I'm making. Stop being so opinionated. Nobody cares. I know social media makes everybody think that everybody's opinion matters, but it really doesn't. And I don't know how to tell, I'm saying that to you in love. Look, I'm saying that in love. Nobody cares. And I'm, and I'm not saying like, no, I'm saying nobody cares about my opinion either. Like, you, father, husband of your home, you probably don't care what I think about whatever you're doing. So you know what? We should all just try to serve God and try to love each other and do the best we can in the positions of authority that God has given us. And I just always think it's funny how people are so... You know, they've got all these opinions about their bad parents over there. And I I think to myself, like, your kid's bad too. Their marriage is so terrible. Like, your wife is unhappy too. You know, they're they're such a mess. Like, have you looked in the mirror? 
I just think if, if, if we spend as much time working on ourselves and on the authority that God has given us as we do having opinions about what... Here's all I'm saying is, before I spend time on social media attacking all the problems in another church, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wake up every day and try to fix the problems in this church. I'm going to try to help this church, try to fix this church, try to be a blessing to this church, because this is the church that God has given me to pastor. And I just think that's the position we should have when it comes to child rearing. Focus on your kids. Instead of criticizing everybody else's kids, criticizing everybody else's job, criticizing everybody else, whatever else other people are doing, just focus on what God has given you to do. And do a good job at it. And you know what you might find? What you might find is that all this critical advice you want to give, if you just focus on yourself and try to be the best pastor you can be, be the best pastor's wife you can be, Try to have the best church you can be. You know what you might find is that other pastors take notice and they start calling you and asking for advice. If you just try to be the best parent you can be, you know what you might find is that other parents in this church notice and they start saying, what are you doing with your kids? Here's what you find. People who are constantly trying to give all their opinions, nobody's asking, nobody cares. People who focus on trying to just be the best they can, they find themselves being asked a lot about their opinions. Because people look at it and they're like, wow, your kids are really good. Maybe I can learn from that. Wow, it seems like you and your wife are just really happy. Maybe I can learn from that. Wow, it looks like that church is being run really well. Maybe I can learn from that. It's just funny to me because I think people want to give all these opinions. They want to be the one that's always being asked. But if you just focus on not giving your opinions, then you might get asked. People might actually care. People might actually value your opinion when you're not just giving it out, all this unsolicited advice. Amos chapter 2, verse 4. That's actually the judgment series, and it just crept into Wednesday night, but it'll sound similar on Sunday, I'm sure. Judah, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Lord, and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked. So what is the problem with Judah? Why does God bring judgment? Remember now, when we're talking about Judah and Israel, we're talking about the, the people of God, the covenant people of God, the people that God had his covenant with. And here God says that the reason that he's going to judge them is because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. And I want you to notice that there is a higher accountability here that God has for the southern kingdom of Judah than what we've seen for the previous six Gentile nations mentioned before. Because with the Gentile nations that we saw before, notice that the law of God has not really been mentioned. What God has been dealing with is what we might call the law of conscience or the natural law. Just things that seem obvious. Like, why are you going to take the time to dig out some old... It'd be like if some nation took over the United States of America and then they just went and found George Washington's bones. Which my family and I actually visited the grave of George Washington, so I could lead you there if you'd like. (laughs) Find George Washington's bones... And, and Martha Washington's bones and just dig them out and set them on fire and desecrate. You're just making, you're going out of your way to be disrespectful. 
And it just seems obvious, like, that seems a little petty. But when it comes to the nation of Judah, God holds them to a higher accountability. He says, you have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. And there's a lesson we can learn from that. Go, go to Isaiah, if you would, Isaiah chapter 5. You're there in Amos. If you go backwards, you have Joel, Hosea, Daniel, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5.24. I often, I often say this to people, and it is this. As Christians, you and I play the game of life by different rules than unsaved people. You can't, it is an unwise thing to look at an unsaved person and say, well, they did X, Y, and Z, and it worked out well, so maybe I'll try that. No, no, no. They're playing by a different set of rules because their game has a different end. Their game ends in hell. Your game, the game of life that you're on, has a different player in it than theirs. Yours has a heavenly father who's watching down and chastises you. So we need to understand that God is holding us accountable to what the Bible says. Isaiah 5.24, notice what it says. Therefore, I want you to notice how similar Isaiah 5.24 is to what we've been reading in the book of Amos. Because what, what have we been reading, and specifically, what did we just read in verse 4? That because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept His commandments, and their lies caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked, He says He's going to send fire to destroy them. Notice Isaiah 5.24. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, doesn't that sound like Amos? And the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their uh, blossoms shall go up as dust. Notice the last part of verse 24. Because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. I mean, that sounds just like Amos chapter 2, verse 4. They have despised the law of the Lord and not kept His commandments. Remember, Amos and Isaiah are contemporaries. And at this point, Amos is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Israel. But in verses 4 and 5, Amos is talking to the southern kingdom of Israel. So his message from Amos sounds a lot like the message from Isaiah. What does that tell you? They both got the message from God. It's God's message to His people. Because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. You say, what can we learn from this? Here's what we can learn from this. Go, go back to Amos chapter 2 if you wouldn't. And it is this, that God expects his people to follow his word. And I know you, you say, well, well, what else are you going to say, right? I mean, I know that sounds like spiritual talk, like what a pastor would say, which is why I said it, because I'm a pastor. But I want you to really think about what I'm saying to you. Because I think Christians, they, they have this idea. And, and even people that come to a church like Verity Baptist Church, they have this idea that like the Bible, you can just take it or leave it. Like it's kind of like this buffet, like you just kind of like take whatever you want, you don't like, you know, and, and, and you just take it or leave it. And to an extent, that's true in the sense that, look, when you start coming to church like this, some of these things may be new to you, and you need to learn it and understand it and grow into it. We understand that, but you also need to understand this, that God expects you to follow His Word, period, end of story. 
God is not pleased with this like, well, I know, because here's what people say. And I mean, I've been doing this for 12 years, and I've heard this for 12 years. People say, well, pastor says, pastor says, and they'll fill in the blank. And I always think to myself like, no, pastor doesn't say, the Bible says. The Bi- it's not pastor says we should go soul No, no, the Bible says we should go soul Pastor said it because it's in the Bible. Pastor's against divorce. No, no, no. The Bible's against divorce. Pastor said it because the Bible's against it. You don't get to decide. Say, well, pastor said it. I think I might do what pastor said. I might not do what pastor said. No, no, no. It's what the Bible says. And you don't get to decide, I'm going to do this and not do that. God expects you to do it all. God says, I'm going to destroy Judah because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. You don't get to decide what part of the Bible you're going to follow and not follow. God will judge you for not following his word. And here's the point that Amos is making. Verse 4. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err after the which their fathers walked. But I will send the fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Here's the point. When you reject the truth of God's word, you embrace lies. And their lies cause them to err. Go to 2 Timothy, if you would, real quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the New Testament, you can find the T-books. They're all clustered together. 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, 2nd Timothy chapter 4. The point that I'm making is this. You should strive to have the attitude that says, if the Bible says it, I'm going to do it. And you should at least have the honesty to say, if the Bible says it and I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to excuse it and say, well, that's just pastor's opinion. No, I'm going to say, hey, that's what the Bible says, and I'm just disobeying God right now, and God may punish me for it. I mean, at least have the honesty to say that. Because otherwise, you're just embracing lies. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. When you turn away from truth, you are purposely embracing lies. And look, we live in a society that people want to be lied to. You should, you should uh, check the emails that we get here at Verity Baptist Church. I don't check them, praise the Lord. There's other people who have that responsibility, and I'm thankful for it. But you know what a lot of our emails, not all of them, obviously there's somebody listening online. Look, we love you. Send us whatever email. We actually answer our emails around here, so that's good. But, you know, a lot of emails we get is people trying to, like, well, I heard this sermon but, and then they try to give us their whole long story, trying to like convince us how they're the exception. And then, you know, the staff guys, their, their response to these emails are like, what do you want me to say? I'm like, doesn't change anything. <laughs> God's still against divorce. It doesn't matter what the story is that led you to divorce. God's against it, period. End of story. There's nothing else to talk about. Now, we'll hear your story and we'll empathize with you. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying... People are often trying to figure out how they're the exception. You're not the exception. You're not that special. Just do what God told you to do. God just wants you to follow the Bible. Because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept His commandments, He says. 
I'm going to destroy them. You turn away their ears from the truth. Go to Amos chapter number 2. Amos chapter number 2. So what we learn from Judas is that, look, God expects his people to follow his word. Now, God is obviously long-suffering. There's other passages of Scripture that tells us that God will judge people based on their maturity level and how much they've been given. And, and, and we understand that, and we get that. And obviously, God's not going to judge a babe in Christ the same as someone. But the point is this. God expects, eventually, every Christian to just get on board with what he says. And we should not have this attitude that says, I know that's what the Bible says, but I'm not going to. That, that, that thought should never cross the mind of a Christian. Amen. If you're not ready to say, I know what the Bible says, and I know I'm not doing it right now, and I'm going to work towards getting there. Amen. I mean, at least say that. Amen. Because God will judge you for despising his law and not keeping his commandments. Right. It's, you don't get to choose, oh, I like this, I don't like that. That doesn't work with God. He says, don't embrace lies. They will cause you to err. And then we have Israel, verses 6 to 16. Obviously, this is the majority of the chapter. And I'll try to walk through this as quickly as we can. When it comes to the nation of Israel, these verses from 6 to 16, they're kind of divided into different sections. One is the rebuke of Israel. The other is the reminder to Israel. The other is the refusal of Israel. And lastly, the ruin of Israel. Let me walk you through these quickly. First, we see the rebuke of Israel. Amos begins to rebuke the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, for their sins. And he brings up here several sins. The first, if you're taking notes, is the sin of covetousness. Notice verse 6. He says, Thus saith the Lord. And by the way, this will be a theme in the book of Amos because the northern kingdom of Israel at this time was a very prosperous nation. And they had a lot of money. They had a lot of comfort. They honestly sound a lot like the United States of America. And so Amos deals with that a lot. And he begins here by talking about covetousness. He says, Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Notice what he says, Because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek, and a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. So I want you to notice that the first emphasis is this emphasis on the sin of covetousness. They sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. He says that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. I want you to notice that the poor people that are being spoken of by Amos, and this is not true, and I, well, Let me make this point. People have this idea that everyone that is poor is good, right? Like, people will have this idea, like, if you're poor, you must be the victim, you must be good. And look, that's not true, necessarily. Not everyone that's poor is good. Some people are are poor because they're bad. Some people are homeless out there because they're drug addicts and they don't want to do what God has told them to do. So one wrong extreme is that everyone that is poor is good. If you're poor, you're good, and we got to try to help you. That's a wrong extreme. Here's another bad extreme. Everyone that's poor is bad. That's a false extreme. Well, people take this attitude like, if you're not living in a nice house, if you're not this, if you're not that, it must be because you're lazy. That's not true. That is not true. 
Some people are poor because they're in the ministry. You know what I mean? Like some people are poor because they've just had bad, uh, uh, just bad things happen in their life. Some people are born are, are poor because they were born in Ethiopia. Do you understand that? Because they were just born in a country where they don't have the opportunity, they, they weren't given the opportunities that you have. So for you to have this attitude like, well, everyone that's poor must be bad, that's a bad extreme. That's a bad judgment. But it's also bad judgment to say everyone that's poor is good. You know, we should be careful about having this, just these blanket statements. Everyone that's, look, everyone that's a sodomite is a reprobate. That's about as blank a statement as you can get. Other than that, when you're dealing with non-reprobates, you should just look at people's individual situations. That's what a judge does. That's what someone with wisdom does. They look at a situation and say, and here Amos is looking at these poor people, and I want you to notice these poor people were not bad people. He says, they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. He says, they uh, pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. Once you notice the words that are being used interchangeably, he calls them righteous and he calls them poor. He calls them poor and he calls them meek. Being righteous and being meek are good things. So these were not people that were bad people. They were righteous people. They were meek people, but they were being taken advantage of by the rich. He says they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. The rich sold the poor into bondage in exchange for, presumably, the money that is maybe owed them. But it's interesting because it says they did it for a pair of shoes. What does that tell us? It tells us that the amount owed was probably an insignificant amount. Enough to cover the price of a pair of shoes. And here's all I'm saying is if somebody owes you the cost, I know some of you wear some really expensive shoes, but I don't care how expensive your shoes are, if somebody owes you the cost of a pair of shoes, it's not worth throwing them into prison for or bondage for. It's something you could be patient about. And look, just as a rule of thumb, we shouldn't, as Christians, we should never fight about money. Money is not worth something fighting about. So God is upset with these people because they are taking advantage of the poor and it's for an insignificant amount. It's for the cost of a pair of shoes. So God is upset with the sin of covetousness. And then we see that God emphasizes the sin of immorality. Look at verse 7, last part of verse 7. He talks about their covetousness. Then he says, a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And obviously, this is talking about immorality and something that is wicked. In verse 8, he talks about corrupt business practices. Notice verse 8. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. I want, I want to focus in on this a little bit because this goes, I want you to notice that Amos is using this, the same way he uses repetitiveness, he's using a pattern here. He began by talking about covetousness, the fact that they sold the poor, the righteous, the meek, for the price of a pair of shoes. Then he talks about immorality. A man and his father will go in unto the same maid. Obviously, 
I think everybody thinks that that's wicked and that's terrible. Then he comes back to covetousness or corrupt business practices. They lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge. And then he goes back to something else that we would call maybe a moral type sin. He talks about drinking alcohol. Last part of verse 8, they drank the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Let me just focus in on this little phrase there at the beginning of verse 8. They lay themselves down upon clothes laid to a pledge. Go to Exodus 22. You say, what is the problem with that? They lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge. In the Bible, God has always taught that it is good and it's a good thing for men to go to work, to engage in business, to try to make money. There's nothing wrong with that. But the Bible has always said that you want to be careful about engaging in business while taking advantage of the poor. You don't want to have these corrupt business practices where you're taking advantage of poor people or just taking advantage of people in general just to make a buck. It would be better for you to lose some money and have a clear conscience than to just be able to take advantage of the situation. Maybe you made it a little more. Hey, I'd rather have God on my side. And here the Bible says in Amos 2.8 that they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge. Say, what's wrong with that? Well, this is actually something that God spoke about in the book of Exodus and that God gave clear instructions about. Exodus 22, look at verse 25. And if you're taking notes, next to Amos chapter 2, verse 8, you could probably write Exodus 22, 25 and 26 because it's a good cross-reference. Exodus 22, 25, the Bible says, If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as a usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. So he says, look, don't charge your brother's interests. That's what the word usury means. Verse 26, If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, now here's what he's saying. In the ancient world, there was a common practice that if you borrowed money from somebody, that they would ask you to give them a pledge. You would give them something of yours as a security that you were going to pay back the loan or pay back that amount um, and that you were going to come back for the thing that you pledged. Or they could keep that if you did not pay what you were supposed to pay. That was common practice. God had no problem with that. But in verse 26, he says, If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him, by that the sun goeth down. Here's what God was saying. If two wealthy business guys are doing deals with each other, and one is borrowing from the other, and the one who's borrowing the money gives a pledge, he's a rich guy, so he's got several coats. You know, you need to understand that and this is, I think this is foreign to us as Americans because you have a house, you have an entire room in your house filled with clothes you don't wear. And that is not, has not been common throughout human history and it's not even common in our world today. There are major sections of our world today where people have one outfit. They don't, they don't just have, they don't have a summer wardrobe and a winter wardrobe and uh, I haven't even, I don't even know what these are wardrobe. So in the ancient world and even just in most of the world today, people don't have a lot of clothes. 
So if a rich guy who had multiple coats, he could give his coat as a pledge. He had other coats. But there were poor people, when they gave their coat as a pledge, that's the only coat they had. There was no other coat. That was it. And they had to actually sleep in their coat at night because it got cold or they could get sick and die. When the, when the lights were out here recently, you know, we kind of felt that a little bit. You actually went to bed wearing your coat. You know what I mean? Because, well, they didn't have air conditioners and they didn't have heaters back then. So God says, look, if you're going to do business with someone that's poor and you take a pledge from them and you take their coat, he says, you better give them that coat every time the sun goes down so that they can sleep in their coat because they need that. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by that the sun goeth down. So here's what God said to rich people. He said, you want to take his coat as a pledge? No problem. I don't have a problem with that. Go ahead and take his pledge, but you better be at his house at sundown and give him that coat back so he can sleep in it. Because that's the only coat he has. God was saying, so what do you think a rich person that was following the law of God would do? They probably weren't going to their house every sundown saying, here's your coat. I'll be back in the morning to pick it up. They probably just said, go ahead and keep the coat. Because God didn't want rich people to be taking advantage of poor people. You say, what was God trying to keep from happening? Exactly what Amos is describing in chapter 2, verse 8. And they, rich people, lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge. They took people's clothes as a pledge, and when God commanded that they deliver it unto him by the the sun going down, Amos said, you're not delivering it back to them, you're sleeping on it. You're sleeping on the clothes that were laid to pledge of poor people who don't have clothes and they're freezing at night. And God says, you know, that's wrong and I will, I will judge you for that. So look, we as Christians, we should not have this attitude. Remember, we play the, li- the game of life differently than unsaved people. Amen. And especially when it comes to business, we should not have this attitude where we're just like trying to get every little penny we can out of the deal. That should not be the attitude of a Christian. You know, we should be generous people. We should go the extra mile. We should go above and beyond. We shouldn't just, we should be, and, and here's what I believe. Is that when you're generous with people, God is generous with you. Amen. I mean, at this church, we give everything away. We don't charge for anything, and God is always taking care of us. Amen. And if I ran a secular business, I, I'm not saying give away your product. I'm not saying that. You should work. But you shouldn't have this attitude where you're just like, I'm going to try to get every little penny. You know, if you act like that with people, God's going to act like that with you. And God is upset with these people because they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge. They're taking pledges from people, and when he commanded in Exodus 22, 26, that they return the raiment when the sun goes down because they need that raiment to stay warm at night, these people were sleeping in it. They were like super, they had their coat and four other people's coats. They're like, man, I'm toasty. (laughs) And God said, I'm going to judge you for that. I'm going to judge you for covetousness and corrupt business practices. Verse 8. Last part of verse 8. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. God says he's upset with them because they're drinking alcohol. He talks about the drink, the, the sin of drunkenness or the sin of drinking alcohol. And I just want to point out that it's interesting to me that God is weaving all of these together. A man and his father go in unto the same maid, They lay themselves upon clothes laid to pledge, and they they drink alcohol. 
They drink the wine of the condemned. And the point that God is making is that all of these things are wicked. And we shouldn't take this attitude where we say, well, of course, a man and his father going in and saying, mate, is wicked, but drinking alcohol, no, don't despise the law of God. God's against all of it. Amen. Just Our attitude should be this. If God's against it, so am I. If God's for it, so am I. So we see the rebuke to Israel. Then quickly, let's look at the reminder to Israel. In verses 9 and 10, God gives a reminder to Israel. Verse 10, he says, Also, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. Excuse me, that's verse 10. Verse 9. Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his root from beneath. God is reminding the children of Israel that he destroyed the giants. If you remember when the children of Israel went into the promised land, when actually when they did not go into the promised land, why did they did not go in? Because they were afraid of the giants of the land. Eventually, they, that generation died out and God sent the children in, the children of Israel in, and they were able to overtake the, the land of Canaan, even with the Amorites, whose height was like the height of the cedars. That is referring to a giant. And of course, we know that David killed Goliath, and there was many other people who killed giants in the Bible. So God is reminding them that he is the one that destroyed the giants for them. In verse 10, God is reminding them that he is the one that brought them out of Egypt. I also brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. And again, God is reminding them that he is the one that gave them the land. He said, I'm the one who destroyed the Amorite. He said, yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. He said, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. He says, I led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. God is reminding them, I destroyed the giants. I brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that gave you the land. And what God is reminding them is the same thing I want to remind you. Whatever you have, it's because God gave it to you. Whatever giants you've won in battle, it's because God allowed you to win those giant battles. God is the one that brought you out of bondage. God is the one that gave you the land you live on. God is the one that gave you the things you live on. So let's not have this proud, arrogant attitude like, look what I've done. No, no, no. Look what God has done. He reminds them that I destroyed the Amorites, whose height was like the height of the cedars, not you. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I'm the one that gave you the land that you currently possess. So we see the rebuke of Israel. We see the reminder of Israel. Then in verses 11 and 12, we see the refusal of Israel. Notice verse 11. And I raised up your sons for prophets and your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? I love that little question that God asked there. He says, is it not even thus? He says, he says, am I lying? Isn't it true? I raised up your sons for prophets and your young men for Nazarites. But notice God says, but you refuse. Verse 12, but ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink. Remember in the Old Testament when you had the Nazarite vow, remember Samson had been given over to the Nazarite vow. Samuel had been given the Nazarite vow. But anyone could take the Nazarite vow. And one of the main things about the Nazareth vial is that you were not allowed to drink or eat anything that comes from the grape. 
And God says, I raise up your sons for prophets and your young men for Nazarites. I gave your young men, your next generation, the opportunity not to live for money, but to live for God. But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, prophesy not. He said, you re- I gave you prophets and you told the prophets to shut up. I gave you Nazarites and you gave them wine to drink. When that's one of the things they weren't supposed to drink as a, as a result of being a Nazarite. And that's not just talking about alcohol. They weren't supposed to drink any sort of grape. Romans 14, 13. Let me just read this for you. If you want to turn there quickly, you can. We see the refusal of Israel. Romans 14, 13. I just want you to notice that Amos says, The problem is that God gave you your sons for prophets and young men for Nazarites. You gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. Romans 14, 13 says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather. We'll deal with that during the judgment series. But here's what I want you to notice, last, verse, last part of verse 13. That no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Amen. Our job as Christians is to try... Look, our job is to try to make sure we're not sinning, but if you're not going to do that, at least don't make other people sin. Right. Right. If you don't want to be a Nazarite, okay, but don't try to get the Nazarite to drink wine. If you don't want to be a prophet, that's fine. But don't tell the prophet to prophesy not. If you're, if you're going to just sin against God and go against God, that's one thing. But let's not put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in our brother's way. Amen. We see their refusal, the refusal to want to accept what God had for them. And then in verses 13, if you go back to Amos chapter 2, we've got to finish up. Verses 13 through 16, we see the ruin of Israel. The ruin of Israel. So we saw the rebuke of Israel. We saw the reminder to Israel. We saw the refusal of Israel. And then we see the ruin of Israel. Remember, these people are pretty proud of themselves. They're pretty arrogant. They're living in prosperity. They've got some money. Things are going well. So they do what human beings tend to do when they're doing well. They get puffed up. They get full of themselves. Instead of realizing like, wow, look at all these blessings. Isn't God good? They're like, man, look how good I am. So here's what God says. Amos 2.13. Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Therefore, he says, the flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not strengthen his force. Neither shall the mighty deliver himself. Neither shall he stand that handleth the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. And, and he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked. In that day saith the Lord. You say, what does that mean? Here's what God is saying. God is saying, I don't care how tough you are. He says, the flight shall perish from the swift. What does that mean? He says, I don't care how fast you are. You're not going to outrun me. He says, the strong shall not strengthen his force. He says, I don't care how strong you are. You're not going to be stronger than I am. Neither shall the mighty deliver himself. I don't care how mighty. He says, neither shall he stand that handleth the boat. I don't care how many weapons you have. And he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. I don't care how fast you are. Neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. I don't care how fast your, uh, your horses are, or your vehicles are, or your armor is. I don't care, God says, the courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked. He says, you think you're tough, but you're not tough. He says, you think you're strong, but you're not stronger than I am. This is what God says. 
And God says, I'm going to ruin you. I'm going to destroy you. Why? Because they would not submit themselves to the word of God. And because they chose to treat each other in an evil way. They weren't kind. They weren't generous. They weren't loving and they weren't forgiving. They were in it for themselves. They were evil towards their neighbor. And God says, I don't care how successful you think you are. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how fast you are, how strong you are. I don't care how many weapons and toys you've got. I will destroy you. And he says, I will ruin you. And this really sets us up the end of chapter 2 for the rest of the book. Because the rest of the book is just a rebuke after rebuke on the northern kingdom of Israel against their covetousness and their corruptness because of the prosperity. And here's what I would say to you is that if you study the book of Amos and you kind of ignore the references to Israel and you just listen to what Amos is preaching against, you might think he's preaching against the United States of America because we're a pretty prosperous, pretty covetous, and pretty corrupt nation as well. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the book of Amos. We thank you for all of the Bible. It's all good. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn from this book. Help us to learn that it matters how we treat people. It matters how leaders treat other leaders. I'm not talking about false prophets. I'm talking about good men doing their best. It's not my job to disrespect them and desecrate them. It matters how we go about our business. We should be generous and kind and helpful. Lord, it matters that we follow the word of God and there's an expectancy from you that we would obey the word of God. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to learn that. I pray that you'd help us to learn to be the type of people that you want us to be because what we're learning from Amos is that you are not a respecter of persons. You will judge nations no matter who they are and you will judge us even as your people if we disobey your word. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to obey it. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. just want to remind you that there is P.E. tomorrow at uh, 10 a.m. at uh, the